Well, it's a pleasure to be with you all again this evening, uh, as it was to be with you all again this morning. Thank you, Pastor Raymond, for the invitation to come and share uh, a bit with you all. And I think, you know, this evening we're dealing with a a bunch of firsts. So actually this morning, um, this morning my sister came with uh, my nieces and nephews, and I thought, I wonder how many... um, People, speakers in this congregation, the guest speakers in this congregation have had their sisters show up. Isn't that pretty awesome? And this evening, my three brothers showed up. They're sitting in the back over here, and I thought, wow, that's pretty awesome. Not only that, but they came with my mother. How many of your Sunday evening speakers have had uh, their mothers come? And to top things off, my college roommate at Westchester is even here. So how many of your... uh, How many of your... How many of your uh, speakers have had their college roommates come? Well, uh, for those of you that may not have been here this morning, I'd like to share a bit about myself before digging into the material. As Pastor Raymond said, uh, I, my name is Dominic Hernandez, and I'm a professor of Old Testament and Semitics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University in Los Angeles. I'd like to introduce you in picture to my family. Uh, this is Gabby and I. We've been married for 19 years and that's a, a picture that we took not so long ago in Newport Beach on the beach in front of that, in front of my boat, sort of. In the middle, that, in the middle that's, uh, that's Yair, our, our oldest son. He's 10 years old, and Yael is 5 years old. She is on the left of the screen. Here's a little bit more about what I do and uh, some of our academic journey and some of the contact information or some of my contact information if you'd like to stay in touch, but you can also just take a picture of that if you're interested. Look, at even commanding you. It's saying, scan me. So you can take a picture of that, and that will take you to my website, and on my website is all of my contact information if you're interested in staying in touch. As for the book of Job, writes Edwin Good, no one is ever finished with it. As for Job, no one is ever finished with it. You know, Pastor Raymond was just up here, and he presented uh, a summary of the book of Job, a brief summary of the book of Job, and some of the, things, some of the questions that we come as to the book of Job with and questions that we leave the book of Job with. And interestingly enough, I'm going to cover a sliver of one of those questions this evening. As for the book of Job, no one has ever finished with it. But I trust that our time together during the question and answer time, which I will leave plenty of time for a question, a question and answer period, uh, will be hopefully edifying and we can touch on some of these issues. One of my favorite novels is written by a Jewish-American author named Chaim Potok, The Chosen. And in this book, The Chosen, which you may have read, a Saturday afternoon crowded service in a Brooklyn synagogue is a scene in which the main character, the protagonist, Reuben Malter, not only passes an evaluation of gematria, gematria refers to the numeric value of Hebrew words, but also experiences a formative educational episode along with his friend Danny Saunders. Danny and Reuben met through a neighborhood baseball league. And the two had become improbable friends. And why had they become improbable friends? Because Danny was the member or a member of an ultra-strict, ultra-Orthodox community led by his father, the Tzadik Rev Saunders. And that day, and, and, uh, and the two had become improbable friends because even uh, though that Danny, excuse me, no, even though, hold on a sec, let me tell you right now, Danny and Reuben, yes, Reuben was a Jewish man, he was not, or a Jewish boy, He's not, he was not part of the, this ultra-strict community, Hasidic community. 
But Reuben shows up to Danny's synagogue, and tension builds in the synagogue when Reb Saunders, the rabbi, he's a prophet-like figure in his community, when he directs his attention to his son after bestowing his customary teaching, he directs his attention to his son, and he asks his son if he has anything to say. Now, the reader of the novel, The Chosen, asks The reader says, why would this tzaddik, this big rabbi, why in the world would this righteous man in the eyes of the community, why would he ask his adolescent son if his adolescent son has anything to say about his lesson? Why would he do that? And as readers come to find out, the Reb Saunders would intentionally embed intermittent blunders into his teaching. He would intentionally embed mistakes into his teaching. And his son and assumed successor, Danny, was responsible for calling attention, listening and calling attention to the incongruities in this lesson while the rest of the community observed learning from the two participants' exchange. Reb Sonner's discourses were so broad and the rhetoric was so cogent and it was so convincing that it took knowledge of countless rabbinic texts Uh, and and Jewish historical texts spanning hundreds of years to discern and redress and deal with the problems that were embedded into the rabbi's speech. And on that day in the Brooklyn synagogue, Danny, in this scene, in this book, he brilliantly, because he's a brilliant boy, he brilliantly discerns everything, every problem that his father had intentionally left in his teaching, except for this one error related to gematria an error which the rabbi left embedded into the discourse to be solved by Danny's improbable and newfound friend, Reuben Malter. You see, what we learn from this scene is that an engaging and contentious dialogue between learned interlocutors, people that are smart and arguing with one another, right? That That debate, that discussion in the presence of spectators is an ingenious method of instruction, and and it's constructive for all of those involved. Ideally, the verbal participants are drawn closer to truth by discovering and critically engaging with the faults in their interlocutor's arguments, right? Or they refine their points of view based upon the sound points of their friends, The nonverbal participants, so that's the spectators in the crowd, the nonverbal participants vicariously engage in the spectacle by not only receiving information from the speakers, but by learning how the verbal participants utilize rhetoric in order to propose convincing arguments in their discourse. So Reb Saunders taught everyone in the synagogue on that evening Shabbat service by testing the knowledge of his two primary, inter- primary interlocutors, his son Danny and Reuben Malter. And the verbal exchange between these three speakers accomplished the task of engaging and informing the whole community. In a similar manner, the book of Job captivates and enlightens contemporary readers by way of presenting the character's disputation, disputation over the theological explanation of Job's suffering. In the, in, the, in the first round of speeches in the book of Job, Job's companions, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, initially encourage him to return to God from some sort of misdeed and to be restored. And in turn, 
Job argues that he hasn't done anything to receive the type of hardship that has come upon him, and that consequently, God does not have a system of just retribution. In fact, Job claims that the reality of his situation and his observations of the conduct of those around him demonstrate the unthinkable. What does Job say? Job says that God actually favors the wicked, as we see in chapter 10, chapter 10 verse 3. By the end of the second round of speeches, so by the time we get to Job chapter 22, upon hearing Job's unorthodox comments about God's injustice and, and this inconsistency in, in, in just retribution, Job's friends start to count him among the wicked. This conclusion leads to a breakdown in communication and a resolute impasse in communication in the conversation in the third round of speeches. And in the third round of speeches, Job chapter 20, Job chapter 22, chapters 20 through to, to 20, chapters 22 through 27, this round appears to be disordered, but, it's, but I would contend actually that it's arranged in a manner that precisely demonstrates the disintegration of effectual communication. Now in this, in these conversations that we're going to go back and, and address in just a couple of minutes, but in this, we learn as participants, as nonverbal participants, how not to be effective communication or conversation partners. We recognize that all of the character speeches are based at least in part upon ignorance, since they all lack knowledge of the heavenly scene that we see in Job chapters 1 and 2, during which Job's reason for suffering is actually narrated. Readers who are aware of the prologue, that is Job chapters 1 and 2, must pay close attention to the content of the discussion in order to detect the characters' disagreements with one another, as well as their erroneous claims, and they all make them, uh, concerning Job's suffering. That is, all of the participants make erroneous claims concerning Job's suffering. Now, rhetorical content is never separated from stylistic packaging. And so readers not only take note of Job and his friends' propositional statements, right? Not only what they're saying, the indicative statements that they're making concerning just retribution, but they also, that is, we as readers also pick up on the presentation of their arguments. So readers learn not only from what Job and his friends say, but also how Job and his friends say it to one another. In exchanging their ideas concerning Job's reason for suffering— the characters employ the finest biblical poetry. That's one of the reasons why Job is so difficult to understand. It's written in the finest biblical poetry, and it's saturated with both common metaphors as well as novel metaphors. In their debate between Job and his friends, they, they use language and imagery that transcends the immediate context of the book of Job and it brings to mind other sections of the Bible that reflect on this issue of just retribution. Even language that's reminiscent of extra-biblical compositions, descriptive how, of how others in the world of the Bible evaluated this similar issue that relates to just retribution. So when contemporary readers engage with Job, engage, or when temp contemporary readers, that's us, engage with Job in its literary context, we observe an exquisite example of rhetorical argumentation from the world of the Bible and its ancient Near Eastern environment. Tracking metaphors 
in the poetic dialogues of Job is crucial to following the arguments between the participants and ultimately tracking their conversation to that eventual impasse in the third round of speeches. It's by following or by tracking how Job and his friends communicate through metaphors that readers are able to understand the content of their disagreements as well as appreciate the genius of the presentation of the overall composition. Readers, that is us, we're like the crowd in the thronged Brooklyn synagogue when we're reading the dialogues of Job, right? We're, we, we, we look at the participants arguing, arguing and we're some, we, we read them, we're sometimes amused, at other times we're disquieted, but we're always enthralled as observant spectators by the content and the presentation of the characters' arguments in the, in the debate concerning just retribution. So during our time together, the rest of our time together, which I think is until about 9 or 10 p.m., whatever, we're, we're just going to focus on, on one specific thread of this metaphorical imagery that relates to just retribution, and that's the light-darkness dichotomy. Now, as we discuss this together at the end of, of our time, or that is at the end of the teaching, I'd be happy to address anything or try to address anything that relates to the book of Job. Uh, textually as well as theologically. But during this time, we're going to focus on this just retribution debate as it relates to one metaphor, and that is this light-darkness dichotomy that's employed by Job and his friends as the theme of retributive justice develops through the dialogue, okay? All right. Glad you're in agreement. Now, the issue of just retribution is arguably the most prevalent theme that appears between Job and his companions, in the dialogue between Job and his companions. Though it's almost impossible to be reductionistic in, in, in the study of the book of Job, we cannot say, oh, it's just about this or, or that or this one thing, right? But the most prevalent, maybe arguably the most prevalent theme has to do with this issue of just retribution, right? And this is especially the case in the first two rounds of speeches in which Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar take turns speaking about the tragic circumstances that have come upon Job. And throughout their discourse, the characters wax poetic, using particularly vivid imagery as they strive, they endeavor to get through to one another. But the book of Job isn't all written in poetry. The composition begins with a prologue that's written in prose narrative. This section of prose narrative, and through this section of prose narrative, we as readers are able to infer this, and this is quite important to understanding what happens in the dialogues of Job. We as readers are able to, we obtain information that the characters in the saga never possess. And this is significant because reading the narrative context of the book of Job facilitates the reader's ability to understand the poetic dialogues, to understand why they're arguing and how they're arguing. In other words, the information to which readers are privy, and we are the readers, right? We're the crowd. We're the nonverbal participants. This information to which we are privy allows us to perceive the reality behind the story, and in turn, we as readers are able to make judgments regarding the character's assessments of the situation. So only we as readers have this privileged information. Only we as readers are able to say, oh, this is actually what's going on here. None of the participants in the dialogue are actually able to do that in the book of Job. And this is key. This is a key point to reading the book of Job well and permitting the dialogues to have their full rhetorical impact upon us as readers. Readers of Job 
are like captivated spectators watching the drama play out as the characters argue with one, as they wage war uh, uh, with one another. You know, from, from, and they're waging war from a position of partial ignorance over this significant issue of divine retribution. It's not only important to be familiar with the gist of the content of Job, which can be attained by just reading the prologue and the epilogue. So when I say epilogue, I mean the final couple of chapters that is also written in, in prose narrative. Uh, in order to be good stewards of our privileged information and come to reasonable conclusions about the book of Job, we must also be familiar with how the content is presented. So what I'm saying here is we, we can't read Job simply straightforwardly because it's written in exquisite poetry. So in order to understand what's going on, we have to be familiar with how the information is presented as poetry. And that's what we're going to focus on a little bit because it's by focusing on Job as poetry, the dialogues as poetry, we're actually able to see what they're saying to each other. We're actually able to track their argumentation. The narrative prose story that leads into the dialogues is encountered in Job 1 and 2. That's the best image I could get of Satan. Sorry. Now, the, that's not Job, by the way. Job shows up in the next slide. You'll, you'll, you'll recognize him when we get there. Now, the protagonist, Job is depicted as an upright and blameless man. The Hebrew words are tam b'yashar. They're repeated over and over as, as it relates to the character of, of Job. He's a, an upright and blameless man who's particularly concerned for his family and the things of the Lord. We read this in Job chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And immediately, readers are brought into this celestial meeting with, with the Lord. Other members of the divine council and Satan or the Satan are present. Now, let me just pause and say why I'm saying it that way, okay? In, in Hebrew, the word here is ha-satan, and the ha before satan is a definite article, and it literally means the word the. So some commentators, even evangelical commentators, look at this figure as some sort of adversary, but maybe not the personal Satan, because Satan, when he shows up by name, does not have the definite article before his name, like, in, for example, in 1 Chronicles 21.1. So Satan, the Satan, whatever your interpretation is, it is a bit of an interpretation here. We don't know exactly who this character is. Uh, I think that it's probably like the actual Satan, but that, that's just a digression, I think. Ultimately, in Job chapter, chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2, we're seeing a divine contest come to pass, and it does seem like this Satan character is actually challenging God's system of retribution. And, and so whether it's an adversary or the adversary, here, I, I think that we're dealing with the same issue, which we can talk about later if you're interested. Now, the Lord addresses Satan and curiously points out God. It's God, the Lord, right? The devotion of his servant Job in chapter 1. And so Satan retorts and he says, it's obvious. Look, 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 look. Of course, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's obedient to you, right? Uh, he's devoted to you because you supernaturally protect him. You put your hedge about him. You cause him to prosper, and you prohibit him from experiencing adversity in life. That's how the argument goes. And Satan's comments suggest that if Job's ex Job experiences calamity, right? If he experiences calamity in his world, his disposition toward the Lord will change, and he'll become just like a person who interprets personal tragedy as punishment. In turn, Job will act like those who don't fear God, says Satan, and he will curse God to his face. So God accepts the challenge and begins by permitting Satan to sabotage the world around Job without touching his body. 
Job's moral uprightness is immediately put to the test. He is promptly depleted of all of his financial prosperity, so his cattle, for example. He's depleted of his his servants, and in one fell swoop, all ten of his children. But Job's response is not quite what Satan expects. Job falls on the ground and worships and, and and, 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 and and refrains from uttering anything offensive against the Lord, even after those tragedies that came upon him, even, though, even losing his, his children. So, will the Satan confe- concede defeat, or will Satan concede defeat? No. It, Satan won't concede defeat. And we have a second celestial scene that's almost identical to the first, literally almost word for word. Several verses are literally almost word for word. Satan appears before the divine council once again, And on this occasion, Satan insinuates that the proverbial, we could say, the proverbial deck was stacked against Satan. The deck was stacked against me. So we get from his rhetoric. Why? That's the reason that the first venture against Job didn't work. That's why it didn't come to Satan's expected conclusion. Satan reasons that Job didn't curse God because he himself remained unscathed. All of the calamity fell on others around him. So if Job's touched... If Job personally experiences the the effects of the devastation, if Job can feel pain, if Job can feel misery and and the distress of personal torment, according to Satan, Job will indeed curse God to his face. And so on the grounds of this appeal, Satan is given permission to to physically afflict Job, physically afflict him, uh, with the limitation that Job must not die from this assault. Upon leaving the Lord's presence, Satan immediately afflicts physical agony upon Job. He causes swelling on his entire body. Another unknown skin condition, he causes bad breath, among other physical issues. By way of his undeserved suffering, Job becomes the lead now in this drama that plays out over the subsequent chapters relating to whether or not God's servant will hold to his integrity. Now we're looking at Job. Will he indeed continue to hold to his integrity irrespective of his lot in life? And readers follow along wondering how upright people can maintain their integrity despite being victims of undeserved and tragic circumstances. Now what's interesting is that after the prologue, we get to Job chapter 3, and in Job chapter 3, Job's temperament shifts once his body is touched by Satan. It's interesting. Job fell down on his face and worshipped when everything around him was, was touched. But now, once his body is touched, his temperament does change as per the composition. Job is no longer depicted as silent. He speaks up. He speaks out. And he progressively does, he does this in a progressively more and more shocking manner throughout the rest of the composition. Now, we initially encounter Job's voice in prose in chapter 2 during a brief and I would say baffling interaction with his unnamed wife, okay? And in this, through this exchange, through Job's exchange with his wife, Job appears intent on accepting his lot from God, whether good or bad. But then Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar show up. They arrive on the scene initially to empathize and comfort him, but it seems like the combination of, one, Job's personal affliction, two, his wife's confrontation, and three, the presence of his friends, provides 
a poetic monologue in which Job changes his tune. He curses the day of his birth, and he wishes that he had never been born. In chapter 3, at the beginning of Job's chapter 3 monologue, this is what he indignantly proclaims. These are my translations, by the way. All the translations of Job are mine. So you might not find them in your Bible, but I do highly recommend that you follow along in your Bible. We're going to skip around here. And you might say to me, I wonder why he translated this that way. And you're welcome to ask that, okay? But this is what he says. May the day in which I was born be damned. And the night that said a man has been conceived. Tell us how you really feel, Job. In this verse, we see Job retroactively wishes non-existence, the non-existence of the day of his birth, right? He vividly expresses his desire to eradicate the day that he was born, to extirpate his, his presence from the world. He wants out of the world. And Job's usage related to the light-darkness dichotomy here is particularly significant in communicating his desire to eliminate this day of his birth. Look at how he, in, in, in the next verses, in verses 4 through 6, this is what Job says here. He says, May that day, still speaking of his birthday, be darkness, and may God not seek it from above, and may light not shine upon it. May darkness and deep gloom desecrate it. May a cloud dwell on it. May deep darkness of the day terrify it. He goes on to say, That night may darkness take it, May it not rejoice among the days of the year. Into the number of the months may it not come. All right, the bolded words, I think they, they probably showed up as bolded here, but the, the words of light and darkness are throughout just these three verses that we, that we read together. And, and they, represent, they demonstrate a dichotomy that Job uses to express his desire for the elimination of the day of his birth. He wants that day eliminated. Now, the various expressions related to darkness don't all come from the same Hebrew word. So he's, not, he's utilizing poetic stylation, or I'm sorry, style, stylistic variation in poetry. But here's the thing, irrespective of these different words for darkness, the concepts of light and the absence of light depict sort of a, an existence slash non-existence dichotomy that Job is trying to illustrate. And this dichotomy is particularly evident, go back to verse 4, in verse 4, where Job hopes that the day of his birth should, or is considered darkness. And in the parallel line, Job wishes that light didn't shine upon it, right? So as we read verses 3 and 4 in juxtaposition with one another, we observe the development of the following metaphors. Non-existence is darkness. And then by inference, existence is light. That's how Job is talking in Job chapter 3. Darkness, non-existence. Light, existence. But then this imagery develops a little bit, okay? There's a subtle development in the imagery as Job continues to speak in chapter 3. Darkness is then embodied. It's personified. And Job is hopeful that, that darkness would desecrate or terrify or take the day of his birth. And this image is consistent with the idea that being driven out of existence is, is, is intimately linked with this idea of being pushed into darkness. Personification is key in tracking the, 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 the progression of Job's usage of this light-darkness dichotomy since it reveals an additional aspect of the imagery of darkness. 
if darkness were incarnate, claims Job, if darkness could be, person, like if it were a person or a thing, it, could, it would wreak havoc, havoc on Job's birthday. It would extinguish it. It would extinguish the light of Job's birthday. It would put it out of existence. Now, Job continues in this monologue, and he, and he develops the imagery further, and he uses these domains of light and darkness to patently relate to life and death. Uh, later on in his speech, Job says the following. He asks these, these questions. Why was I not buried stillborn? And then in the parallel line, why was I not as babies who never saw light? Now, we, we sort of intuitively understand these types of metaphors, but it's very important to tease out what we understand intuitively occasionally because, especially in the book like Job, there's a motif that runs through the book, and unless we are paying attention to this type of imagery, this type of language, we'll start to skip, we'll start to miss the motif as it continues. I'll, I'll, I'll further explain that in just a couple of minutes here. But in this verse that we see above me, uh, Job alludes to the light-darkness dichotomy to refer specifically to human life and death. So qu quite literally, stillborn babies don't see light, and that's what Job is making reference to. The, the dead perpetually remain in darkness, according to Job, never having seen light. And so Job then proceeds to metaphorically use this imagery to complain that he was forced to live by being given light when he preferred death, when he preferred darkness. And here's how he does it toward the end of his, on his, of his monologue in chapter 3. Why does he, that is God, give light to the sufferer and life to the bitter of soul? Those who wait for death, but it is non-existent. And those who dig for it more than hidden treasures. Okay, Job doesn't want the light that God gave him because light represents life. The concept light overtly corresponds to life in, the, in, these, in these parallel lines and alludes to the image of the stillborn baby that Job mentioned already, right? That baby does, is not given life. Job wished he hadn't seen life. He wants to be in the realm of the dead. Why does Job want to be in the realm of the dead? Well, as we read in chapter 3, it's because the realm of the dead or darkness as, as death or death as darkness represents rest for Job. So these more specific metaphors develop by the, the, the time we get to Job chapter 3. Death is darkness. Life is light. Like, wow, wow, why draw all of that out? Well, actually, Job's monologue is loaded with that, this terminology, right? And that's why Job's, this is the first time we see anyone speaking in the dialogues of Job. This is initially a monologue, but then his friends respond to it. It's very important to recognize that the, the way that the composition is set up is that his friends are reacting to Job. So Job's first comments in Job chapter 3 are crucial for us understanding the rest of the dialogue. And this light-darkness dichotomy is an easily identifiable, uh, identifiable trope that Job's friends, uh, Job's friends jump on. They, they react to it. They respond to it. Uh, and they, they take issue with it. They take issue with, the with how Job uses this light-darkness dichotomy to re represent life as terrible and death bringing about rest for the afflicted self. They don't agree with this, and they're going to argue based upon the same imagery that he uses. They, they, think, that they, can, they think that they can fix Job's fallacious reasoning, uh, and, and Job's companions respond to his monologue, encouraging him to admit some type of fault and concede to the traditional wisdom concerning divinely oriented just retribution, which asserts that one always gets what they deserve. You do bad, you get bad. You do good, you get good. 
Eliphaz, who's Job's oldest friend, he's presented as the oldest of the group, accuses Job of not practicing what he preached when he speaks up. And he finds it unsettling that Job has helped others in the past. He says, hey, Job, you've helped others in the past in chapter 4, but now you prefer to have been, not have been bored since, born since these tragic circumstances have come upon you, as you can see in this verse above. Now, Bildad and Zophar, Job's other friends, they start to chime in, right? And they encourage Job to turn back to God from some hidden sin or some hidden issue so that he could be restored to his former glory. And Job repudiates his friend's suggestions that he's committed some sort of misdeed, and he summons God to appear for trial. He says, God, show up. Like, I'll stand before you. I want you to just show up so that we can have a trial. He starts doing that in, verse, in chapter 9. Now, what starts as a difference of opinion among friends, we know how this works, bring up politics, bring up soccer, bring up the Eagles versus the Giants. What starts as a difference of opinion among friends in the first round of speeches disintegrates into an unpleasant interaction by the second round of the dialogues. And Job's friends pivot their emphasis away from encouragement to turn back to God toward warnings of impending disaster that awaits Job because of his impiety. Of course, Job and his friends only have partial knowledge of his circumstances, while readers, that's us, have extremely vital information relating to Job's suffering. Readers follow the dialogues in light of the narrative in Job's monologue, right? We, we know what's going on. We went on in the prose narrative. We, 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 we read Job's monologue, and, and this creates tension for readers as the characters begin to argue about what they consider to be the main cause for Job's suffering. Namely, Job's friends believe that Job endures affliction because of his misdeeds, misdeeds carried out in his personal life, while Job points to God and claims that God is unjust. Readers know the actual reason for Job's suffering is a divine contest, contest between God and Satan. And that creates, there's a strained relationship here, the strained relationship between the knowledge of the informed reader and the propositions of the, of, of the relatively ignorant characters. And, and that's part of the drama of reading Job. That's why it causes so many questions. Discerning the nature of the characters' disputes requires paying close attention to the vivid imagery they employ throughout the dialogues since their arguments are mostly couched in metaphors similar to Job's monologue. So if we don't follow their metaphors, if we don't follow the motifs that continue throughout the dialogue, we will impose our own questions on the book of Job, expecting Job to answer what we want to get out of it as opposed to tracking what they're actually talking about, all right? So let's just continue to track how the imagery of light and darkness is used by Job and his friends in their second round of speeches, verses, or chapters 15 to 21, as they continue to argue over this issue of retributive justice. Now, instead of prosaically communicating uh, with Job that all of his arguments are illegitimate, Job's friends inform him of his dire fate in poetic form. Because that's how he talked to them, right? Exactly the way in which he communicated his desire to be dead with them in his monologue in poetic form. By the second round of speeches, Job's companions suggest that the darkness metaphor he broached in his monologue, all this light darkness stuff, 
most appropriately applies to the retributive death of the wicked. His friends start to say, no, Job, you're using that metaphor the wrong way. It applies to the death of the wicked. Since uh, for all intents and purposes in the, the, the traditional or the conventional paradigm of just retribution, death is darkness, it seems justifiable to Job's friends to warn him of the impending darkness and to simultaneously let him know that he is confused with regard to this light-darkness dichotomy. Job's companions' usage of light-darkness, this light-darkness symbolism, is intended to reveal to Job that his imagery, that the imagery he uses, ironically relates the consequences of wickedness that he's brought upon himself. Their usage of metaphors, especially related to darkness, seem to be the proverbial, at least to them, nail in, nail in, coffin, in the coffin, right? They are, in terms of providing their point that Job must quickly return to God, they start to use this darkness imagery as, the, as their final argument. This is why you should return to God. And Job then, in turn, as they're arguing back and forth, like good friends do, Job responds to their usage of the light-darkness dichotomy in a retort in chapter 21. All right, so despite the fact that Eliphaz initially responds to Job in the role of sort of this learned and concerned senior advisor that we see in Job chapters 4 and 5, his second speech, which starts in Job chapter 15, is replete with severe warnings targeted at Job. Eliphaz claims that the eventual penalty for wickedness is death in God's consistent system of just retribution. He explicitly invokes imagery of darkness to which Job alluded to in his monologue uh, to make Job aware of the fact that he is on his way to suffering the traditional consequences of being wicked. This is what Eliphaz says in chapter 15, verses 22, 23, and 30. He, that is the wicked person, he's speaking to Job here, right? He does not believe in his return from darkness, and he has spied out for a sword. He wanders for bread. Where is it? He knows that the day of darkness is established in his hand. He will not depart from darkness. A flame will dry up his branch. He will depart by the breath of his, that is God's mouth. Now, the first line in, in, in chapter 15, verse 22 Alludes to, the, alludes to the demise of the wicked person by using this imagery of darkness, right? And th- this becomes particularly evident after reading the second line of the verse, which I'll go back here for you. This is, this is the first verse on this, on this slide. Um, now, the, after reading, when you read the second line of this verse, the sword is, ref, rested, uh, is referred to as a, as a way in which or the sword relates to the horrid death of the wicked. So we see in the first line, he, the wicked person, does not, he does not re- believe in his return from darkness. Darkness is death. And he has spied out for the sword. Okay, we get the sword part. Now we understand the darkness part even further. This is retribution upon wicked people according to Eliphaz. Now Eliphaz then parallels this concept of darkness with the image of a branch dwindling under the heat of the flame in verse 30. Again, we get this. We understand where he's going. Death is, a, is sure for a wicked person. It's as sure as a, a branch or a twig being scorched over a fire. 
Then Eliphaz, uh, actually Eliphaz reveals the reason for this in these verses as well. What's the reason? He's confident that judgment will come to pass on Job. Why? Because God takes personal retribution upon the wicked according to Eliphaz. The wicked departs from the land of the living because they've been blown away by the breath of God's mouth according to Eliphaz. He similarly stated in, in his first speech the following. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow mischief will reap it. From the breath of God, they will perish, and from the breath of his nose, they will be consumed. Eliphaz is sure Job's judgment is certain because God implements this just retribution since he is, and he is so confident that this is what's going to happen. God is on Eliphaz's side, and therefore Eliphaz considers his doctrine to be impregnable. Job, on the other hand, better turn back, right, before Job gets the darkness that he claims he wants. You see here this play with darkness. Job, you're actually going to get this darkness, but it's not the darkness that you really think that you want. It's actually, darkness actually represents retribution upon the wicked, and you're going to get it if you keep on with that attitude. Sound like some parents in here. God quickly, or, he, or Job quickly must return before he gets the darkness that he's claiming that he wants, but not the darkness that he expects. Job will receive retribution in the form of darkness, but it won't be rest, it'll be pain. It won't be rest, it, it will not be peace, it'll be pain. Now, just as in any good debate, the, 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 the friends or the interlocutors here respond to their adversaries' points in time. And Job is depicted throughout the composition as paying keen attention to his friend's statements. And in this case, he's paying attention to Eliphaz and responds to his usage in, of darkness in the very next speech in Job chapter 17, verses 13 through 16. Here's how Job responds. He says, If I hope for Sheol, my home, so the place of the dead, Sheol, my home, in the darkness, there it is, I spread out my bed. I have called to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, and my sister. And where, where is my hope? And my hope, who will see it? If I go down to the bars of Sheol, again the place of the dead, together on the, on the, on the dust of rest. Now note, notice again here in this passage, by stating that he wishes to spread out his bed in darkness, right, the place of the dead, Job once again uses this darkness imagery to relate to death in terms of respite. Job is saying, no, 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 no. Darkness actually does mean respite. It means rest from this, this calamitous life, from these circumstances, from this hopeless life. Job is saying, Eliphaz, actually, no. Darkness means rest. Job wants to die. Why? So that he could receive rest from the grave distress that he experienced in the land of the living where there is Light, where there's life. So darkness is, according to Job, and according to his very next speech, this is the very next speech after Eliphaz's speech, right? According to Job, he's, no, actually darkness should not be feared as a consequence of some sort of hidden sin in my situation. No, 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 no. There is no poetic justice in darkness, according to Job, only rest. Now, Job and Eliphaz both use darkness to allude to the netherworld and thereby refer to the state of being dead. And, and, and you would expect, well, like, what, what, why are they doing this, right? Well, actually, in their ancient Near Eastern environment, they're using metaf metaphor, they're using imagery that would have been easily understood by people talking about the realm of the dead during that time. It, there is, there's, there's several examples that we can give of this, but 
Uh, there's an Akkadian language composition called the, the Descent of Ishtar to the Netherworld, okay? And this Akkadian language composition, sim and when I say Akkadian language, I'm, this, is a, this is a composition that was, Akkadian was the language spoken in ancient Mesopotamia uh, during the time of ancient Israel. So this is a document that was dug up out of the earth, but essentially represents the world of the Bible, okay? And in this, in this uh, Akkadian language composition, we read something very similar as it relates to the realm of the dead. Now, as the title of the composition would suggest, the descent of Ishtar to the netherworld, let's go, there we go, there it is, the descent of Ishtar to the netherworld, um, as, as this title would suggest, this account, this, docu this composition tells of an occasion in which the goddess Ishtar resolves to enter into the netherworld, the place of the dead. And these lines, just a couple of lines, provide a brief depiction of the realm of the dead in this composition and thereby gives us some insight into the world in which Job and his friends are depicted as speaking. To the netherworld, the land of no return, Ishtar, daughter of Sin, set her mind. Indeed, the daughter of Sin did set her mind to the gloomy house, the seat of the netherworld, to the house that none leaves who enters, to the road whose journey had no return, to the house whose entrance are bereft of light, where dust is their sustenance and clay their food, they see no light but dwell in darkness. So we see in this composition, and there are plenty other examples like this, the Akkadian language corpus is very, very big and gives us some insight into the world of the Bible and the rhetoric of the Bible, but what we're able to see in a composition like this is that... Uh, the, the place of the dead is likened to darkness, and the, the residents of this place of the dead, are, they're cut off from light. And these images are similarly used in Job to represent the place of the dead and the inhabitants therein. And so just considering these observations, we note that the light-darkness dichotomy was a well-known concept, not only in the Bible, but in the ancient Near East, to refer to life and death. And this, is why the, this seems to be why the characters of Job are, are depicted as intuitively understanding one another. They get it. They get it and they're able to argue over what's going on because it seems like they're depicted as intuitively understanding the metaphors of their friends, right? It's important to note also that the, the narrator, and we do have a narrator in, in, in the book of Job. The, the narrator narrates the prologue as well as the epilogue and certain smaller portions within the composition. The narrator never emerges to, to explain any of these concepts concepts to us. And, it's, and, and so it means that, that readers were likely able to track this argumentation between Job and his friends relating to the light-darkness dichotomy. So if we, as, as contemporary readers, can position ourselves closer to the text of Job by similarly grasping how these images may have been used in the Bible and in its world, we set ourselves up to, to best track this thread of conversation, uh, the, the thread of conversations that that relate to the images that are being used. Job and his friends relate the, to these, they, they're relating to light and darkness uh, for their own theological purposes. But more, more specifically, Eliphaz uses this concept of darkness to depict a hard end for the wicked. Job uses what he, what he, this concept of darkness to be an ideal place for rest. And Job, Job and his friends are not done arguing over which usage is correct. For example, in chapter 18, as we might expect, Bildad disagrees with Job and is compelled to condemn, condemn, him, for, condemn him for his impiety. So now Bildad takes up this 
argument in chapter 18. But Bildad, when he takes up the same argument using very similar imagery, he takes a little bit of a different approach concerning this light-darkness imagery in order to reiterate traditional wisdom. So eventually he says the same thing, but he, takes, he twists this imagery a little bit to, to prove his point. Essentially, that the wicked suffer an excruciating death. Bildad, like Eliphaz, eventually grows impatient with Job's claims, and he says, hey, you know, he, he, he communicates that, that Job doesn't really want to experience this darkness that he adamantly claims to desire. And while he's doing this, he, he communicates that darkness should be understand as the, understood as the tragic fate for the godless, which is how Job is acting since he refuses to return to God. With that understood, that summary understood, this is what Bildad says in chapter 18. He says, yes, the light of the wicked will wane, the flame of his fire will not glean, light will darken in his tent, and his lamp will wane on him. So instead of focusing on darkness like Eliphaz, Bildad switches to focusing on light. Light, that is light-giving sources, are depicted by the words light here, flame, and lamp, and they appear in, in these four lines in these two different verses. This lamp imagery is particularly interesting in this context since it's not light itself, but rather a light-emitting device, a lamp, and that's key because lamp is a, is a unique image that Bildad introduces into the conversation, all right? It's a unique image, and this is very important because according to Bildad, the wicked have the light in, of their lamp snuffed out, known as lamp again, and by implication, the righteous person's lamp will consistently provide light, all right? The introduction of this type of creative imagery, this is a new image into the dialogues, the introduction of this is a move that any attentive conversation partner would observe and use to respond. We would do this in our, in our very day and age. Someone is discussing something with you and they pick up on an illustration and you think that their illustration is weak, you jump on their illustration and you give them another example as to why their illustration is weak. We continue to do this. It's a rhetorical technique we use when we're arguing. And this is precisely what ends up happening in the book of Job. But Bildad is not quite finished using the light-darkness dichotomy to preach traditional wisdom. He says in Job chapter 18, verse 18, that he, that is the wicked person, will be driven from light into darkness, and from the world he will be banished, okay? So, Bildad can take credit here for introducing the lamp imagery into the conversation of Job, but here's what's important. He can't take credit for creating it. In, in, in fact, the concepts of light and darkness being joined with the lamp occur elsewhere in the Old Testament, the, the image of the lamp and its ancient, is, is an ancient trope, again, that transcends the conversation that Job has with his friends and relates to a broader discussion concerning retribution. Check this out, okay? Proverbs 13.9 says, The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. This is why we sometimes go, oh, wait, Job's friends, they sound like right in most of what they say because they're sounding like the Proverbs. You see this? All right. Now, Considering how the light-darkness dichotomy is used to describe the fate of the wicked here in, in Proverbs and in Job, this verse speaks to the, re to, to the retribution issue. Better stated, the, verse in, the verses that, that, that are used in Job that relate to the lamp speak to the retribution issue by suggesting that the lives 
of, of the, the cheerful, of the righteous, are cheerful, while the lives of the wicked will disintegrate as they progress toward their demise. right? The lamp of the wicked wanes. And this imagery of the fading lamp is similar to even other passages that we see. Here's another one for you, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 20, and Proverbs chapter 24, verse 20. And those cross-references at the bottom of the page uh, actually utilize similar imagery as well if you're interested in, in looking those up. Now, these verses from the Proverbs apparently offer the typical view of, of just retribution that Bildad is expressing. And it's so tempting for us as, a, as contemporary readers to jump on what Bildad is saying because he sounds like the Proverbs. But act, in actuality, and this is another paper for another day, another talk for another day, hopefully I'll be invited back, what we end up seeing in the book of Proverbs is conventional just retribution paired with unconventional retribution. So we see verses like this in the book of Proverbs, and we see verbs or verses that are significantly different. For example, we read, if you are lazy, or you, if you're poor in the Proverbs, it's because you're lazy, you don't work hard. And then we read, and, and, those, and those, those verses in the book of Proverbs, are, are, they condemn laziness and the like. And then right next to them, we, we read verses that say, God has a special place in his heart for the poor. Like, what does that mean? Right? We have conventional wisdom on the one hand and unconventional wisdom on the other hand. And also in the Proverbs, we see this type. So what we understand through the book of, how about this one? What we see in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, is that they contradict each other. Go figure, right? Answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. They, they say different things, like literally, okay? You read it, they say different things, exactly the opposite. You can look it up, all right? So what do we see in, in the book of Proverbs? We end up seeing either, number one, the, the writer of the book of Proverbs could not read and just sort of copied and pasted. That's not the best option. The better option is that the writer of the book of Proverbs did this intentionally. And by doing this intentionally, demonstrated that wisdom, conventional and unconventional, are situational. So what we end up seeing in the book of Job, particularly through Bildad's use of this lamp imagery, is that he's using conventional wisdom but not in a, right, in a proper situation, which makes it unwise. And that is, we're able to track that by this lamp imagery by him inserting, by him basically saying, I'm going to sound like traditional Israelite wisdom for you. Here goes nothing. The lamp of the wicked wanes. And the reader goes, not now, not in this situation. No way. That's not wisdom, even though it sounds a lot like Proverbs. All right. So these, these verses from the book of Proverbs, they present this, this typical view of retribution that Bildad expresses here. Uh, and Bildad, he, he just intensifies this light-darkness dichotomy by bringing up the lamp in order to point, point, point that, you know, Job, you've misunderstood your own fate, right? You, you, you think you want darkness, but no, 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 the lamp of the wicked wanes. People are dispossessed of their lives. They're pushed out of the domain of light. They're pushed into darkness. No, you don't understand this. This is the fate of the wicked. According to Bildad and Eliphaz, Job is mistaken. Darkness, darkness is not is not restful. It's retributive. Job has to understand this quickly, okay? All right. So how does Job responds, respond? Well, here's how he responds. In Job chapter 21, he expresses that the idea of consistent, divinely appointed, just retribution is an absolute farce. And, and this is not simply because he's suffering. 
the greater evidence, according to Job, as presented in Job chapter 21, the greater evidence supporting the absurdity, according to Job, of just retribution, consistent, divinely oriented, just, divinely appointed just retribution, the biggest proof to him is that the wicked prosper. According to Job, the wicked prosper. And this means there isn't a consistent system of just retribution. The, the success of the wicked is emblematic according to Job, of divine injustice. And it undermines this principle of consistent divine retribution. Job, again, challenges his companion's traditional wisdom by utilizing, by using this metaphorical light-darkness dichotomy, all right? By using this, this imagery once again, Job demonstrates that he's paying very close attention to the things that they're saying. He's paying very close attention to their argumentation, and he informs them of, of, he informs them of the fact that he believes, actually, that they're sorely misguided. But now, by the time we get to Job 21, he has a new image at his disposal in his rhetorical repertoire, the lamp. All right? And Bildad's introduction of the lamp imagery into the conversation is shrewdly adapted by Job in order to... To, to, to precisely refute what Bildad is trying to assert. Bildad's statement that the light of the lamp of the wicked will diminish and eventually die out, blah, 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 right, is countered by Job where he sardonically wields Bildad's imagery, uh, image that, and he, and he states, how often does the lamp of the wicked wane? Notice he's picking up on Bildad's imagery. This is great. The whole light-darkness thing is coming to it. Like, he's specifically saying something that Bildad picked up. He says, Really? How often does the lamp of the wicked wane and their calamity come upon them? How often does God distribute pains in his anger? Re really? Okay? By questioning whether the, the, the wicked are really deprived of life or light, Job parodies Bildad's usage of, the lamp, of, of, of this lamp imagery, and he, he, re, he, re, he rebuts his claim that the, the light of their lamp wanes until it eventually goes out, which is just conventional wisdom that, that we see Bildad picking up from the book of, uh, of Proverbs or other sort of, um, it seems like it was a pretty common trope anyway. But according, according to Job, he's, he's such a, this rarely happens, okay? That, and according to Job, that means that there's no such thing as consistent divine, divinely appointed just retribution. Now, Job spends the lion's share of this chapter, chapter 21, striving to back up this claim that the lamp of the wicked doesn't go out, right? It doesn't wane. That's not what happens. And how does he do this? He points out that the wicked actually prosper. He claims to have observed, like with his own eyes, the impious living lives of good fortune with no decrease in quantity at all. Traditional wisdom, according to Job, does, it's not applicable in, this, in his situation, and he, he, he suggests that the lamp of the wicked gleams, right? The lamp that's supposed, according to their system of just retribution, that's supposed to, to go out, it actually gleams the brightest. And in order to prove this to his friends, Job gives specific examples of how he's actually seen the wicked prospering, okay? Here's what he says. Job's friends argue, and these are other themes, that mo other motifs that we see throughout the dialogues in the book that we haven't been able to focus on exclusively. We only focus on one of these. But Job's friends argue throughout the dialogues. They, they, they don't, the wicked don't have descendants. Hey, Job, your kids died, right? That's what happens to the wicked. So, right? They, they repeatedly argue. Wicked people don't have descendants to carry on their name and memory onto successive generations. By the way, look up Proverbs 10, chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 10. It says exactly that. So there's traditional wisdom. Here, it applies to you, Job. And we as readers, were like, nah, it doesn't actually. 
because this is not a traditional situation. Remember the divine contest of the prologues? This doesn't apply to Job because Job's going through this because there's a divine contest going on, not because he's done something that is deserving of this type of, of, of suffering. But Job considers this claim to be nonsense. As you can see, I've put all of sort of his rebukes. I've ordered them up there. He considers this claim to be utter nonsense, given that the wicked are surrounded by joyous children, so he claims in Job chapter 21. Now, Job's friends also argue that, that, uh, that the wicked are de de deprived of their financial prosperity. Again, sort of traditional wisdom that we see in the Proverbs. Wicked people end up poor. Well, this claim is ridiculous to Job, uh, and he notes that the cattle of the wicked are particularly fertile. Now, zoological plenty is maybe not, doesn't mean that much to us in our contemporary day and age, uh, unless you live about 100 miles that way. Tough crowd. But, but it's one of the ways in which ancients were able to maintain abundance throughout generations, right? Zoological plenty. And Job says the wicked are rich. They're rich. They have plenty. And as we've talked about in part, Job's friends repeatedly state that the wicked die these horrible deaths. And we didn't even touch on some of the things that Zophar said. He says in chapter 20, uh, in addition to the things that we've talked about, he says the same type of thing. Job deems this to be erroneous and asserts that the wicked live these long, productive lives and they're even honored in their deaths. And you're welcome to, to look those verses up, uh, uh, you know, whenever you want. But that's, this is how the argumentation goes. So at this point, the argumentation comes full circle in the book of Job. Their fundamental disagreement concerning whether or not there is consistent, divinely appointed retribution has gone absolutely nowhere, and, and, and they're not interested in, in being convinced by their, their interlocutor's opinions. But readers, again, we're part of this because we're nonverbal participants, right? We see that the battle over theology quickly turns into a battle of imagery throughout the dialogues, with light and darkness being among the domains that are used by the characters to argue their positions. Now, we've, been, we've only been examining one thread of dispute over just retribution, um, but I think that this thread of just retribution can maybe a little lightheartedly be summarized in the following manner, okay? So Job says, this is bringing it all to, you know, everything that we've talked about, this is the summary here. Job in chapter 3 says, I wish I'd never seen light, right? Damn the day of my birth. I want darkness because I want to rest in the place of the dead. That's what Job says in chapter 3. Now, Eliphaz is like, no, 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 don't, you don't really actually want that, Job, right? Darkness represents death, but insofar as it's punishment for the wicked. And then Job immediately comes back in his next speech and says, no, 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 I actually do want darkness because I want rest. And Bildad says, uh, you don't really want that, Job. Look, darkness is reserved for the wicked who are pushed out of the land of the living. The lamp of the wicked goes out and is eventually extinguished. And Job's like, yeah, 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 because, you know, Proverbs says this, and it, it, this is just traditional wisdom that they're uttering without, you know, understanding his situation from his perspective because he knows that he hasn't done anything to deserve the type of retribution that has come upon him. So he comes back and basically says, as you can see there, yeah, right. How frequently does this happen? How frequently does the lamp of the wicked get put out? Really? Not frequently? Oh, yeah, that's what I thought, right? By the way, have you ever observed how, how prosperous the wicked actually are? 
says Job in chapter 21. And according to Job, this means that there is no consistent system of just retribution. Now, after Job's comments in chapter 21 about the prosperity of the wicked, this conversation, as I mentioned earlier, breaks down. And, um, and, and God eventually does appear to Job in a storm, and he quiets Job. And Job's friends, ironically, you ready for this? Here's the, one of the great pieces of irony in the book of Job. He quiets this discussion of just retribution by not, applying to it, by not replying to it. God eventually appears to Job in a storm, and he quiets Job by never replying to any of Job's questions concerning his suffering or retributive justice. God never responds. Job and his companions presumably finish their ordeal not having received a definitive answer relating to even why Job suffered. And, 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 as a, and because of that, they never settle their argument concerning the proper usage of the domains of light and darkness. Now, given the fact that Job and his friends presumably don't get lots of questions answered through the book of Job, that should preclude us from asking those questions of the book of Job. That is, if God didn't respond to certain things, it was very clear that the book of Job is not intended to teach those things. The void in the divine speech might be disheartening to us, right? We're like, oh, come on, come on, come on. We want the composition to answer things that, 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 that Job passionately advanced. Like, show up, God. Like, eh, demonstrate this to me, right? Right? That's what we want. But I have a question. What if Job, as a composition, as it was crafted, what if Job was written for readers in the way that Reb Saunders and Danny's dialogue was conducted in front of the crowd in the Brooklyn synagogue? That is, what if at least one of the purposes of the book of Job, of the composition, is to engage the reader in the argument by encouraging us to think critically about the issues broached in the dialogues while observing the blundering characters striving to set, uh, set each other straight? What if that's actually one of the, the goals of the book of Job? Maybe the book of Job isn't intended to answer all of our questions about retributive theology or theodicy or the issue of uh, the, the wicked prospering. Now, during our time together, we've discussed only one of one group of related images used in the poetic dialogues of Job. And this, is this has permitted us to, to track just one theme in this multifaceted composition. We cannot be reductionistic about the book of Job. I re reiterate that. But understanding this metaphor, these metaphors, death is darkness and life is light, understanding how they are adopted, how they're reused, and how they're revised by the characters permits readers to follow one aspect of the argument concerning just retribution. Readers of Job, that's us again, we are privileged with knowledge that enables us to track this in the, char in the characters' arguments and their dispute over this issue of just retribution in the dialogue. And as we've seen just by glancing at the book of Proverbs and one ancient Near Eastern example, neither light, nor the light-darkness dichotomy, nor the lamp imagery, neither one of those were novel in the literary environment of Job. And so it comes to us as no surprise, comes to the reader as no surprise that, that Job and his companions understand how their dialogue partners use and rework the common imagery for their theological purposes. The, the nuancing of the imagery relating to light and darkness makes for, at bare minimum, in, engaging reading, right? Given that the dispute is lively, it's logical, it's highly cultivated. And this type of learned conversation in which, in which 
there are threads that must be followed in order to grasp the essence of the drama challenges us as readers. It challenges us intellectually, but it challenges us theologically. And it comes, despite the challenge, or through the challenge, I guess we could say, comes with significant payoff because as readers pay attention closely to Job, as we, as we read this book, we catch on to figures of speech. Not just Job, by the way, but as we read closely, the Bible closely, we catch on to figures of speech being used to make significant points in the conversation. The reading, the reading, becomes, the reading of the Bible becomes increasingly captivated as we're close, captivating as we're close readers. And in the case of Job and his friends, it, it prompts consideration of the issue of just retribution, the sovereignty of God, suffering, and among other significant themes. And in this sense... The book of Job is functioning as the book is functioning as a sagacious teacher. The author of the book of Job could have just flatly recounted conversations between Job and his friends in such a way that provided the readers their theological gist. Just this is what they said. That's it. But but in this way, the readers actually the writer could have uh, utilized narratival comments in order to explain or straightforwardly answer some of the most pressing issues in the ancient Israelite context as well as in our context. But that's not, what the, that's not what Job does. Instead of sort of blandly spewing acceptable standards of thought about God and behavior to God, the author leaves in the theological mistakes of the characters and does this in, a highly, in highly stylized poetic dialogues while providing readers, that's us, readers exalted information. We as readers are given exalted information in straightforward prose. So we get this exalted information in straightforward prose, and we enter into the dialogues with this information as, as readers that are ready to learn from the disputes and even from the mistakes of the characters. It's, I think, an ingenious pedagogical method forcing readers to pay close attention to the figures of speech in the dialogue in order to track important motifs and teaching points in the composition. And so as we read Job, we stand back and we watch the characters of Job blunder in their disagreements, knowing that their misjudgments and their quarreling is actually for our good. All right. Reflections, questions. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So a, a couple. This is a this is a good question, and that's not just filler. This is actually a good question. Yeah. I think that uh, now now I'm now I'm buying time. No, I, I a couple of things. I remember when I initially started interviewing for jobs in 2014. I was sitting with some some Old Testament scholars, and we were talking about preaching from the Old Testament. 
and they asked my opinion about preaching from the Old Testament, and like uh, a good sort of junior person, I eventually asked their opinion, and one of the scholars said something that was very similar. They said, in many of these passages, we, if we're going to preach texts well in their context, we don't necessarily need to make the leap to the cross. We just need to recognize God is good. And many of these passages, especially books like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job, as opposed to striving to make a very quick leap to Christian terminology, Christian rhetoric, the, even what we would consider to be you know, essential parts of the salvation story, what if we were to, to dwell in these texts which are equally inspired as Paul and Matthew? And what if we dwell in these texts to recognize how good our God is from these texts, right? We learn unique things as we read these texts holistically. As we, so I, I, would, I would respond by saying that it is not necessarily uh, the responsibility of the reader in, in, our con- in, in these contexts to view things messianically the way that you might be using this type of language, right? Uh, we can learn about our God uniquely from all of the texts in the Bible. No, you can't. Don't ever try it. If you need help, you can buy my books. The, yeah. Yeah. No, um, we, we shouldn't do such a thing. First of all, if, if, if that were our reasoning, understand that there would be large sections of the canon that we would pull out because we could get the gist of certain things and never have to deal with the actual text. But I, one of the reasons why I do what I do is because I love walking through these difficult texts with people, sometimes figuring things out, sometimes saying, I don't know, and moving on. As it relates to the book of Job, think, think about the reasoning that you just used. We'd cut out large portions of the book of Psalms. We'd cut out large portions of the Proverbs. Who would even go near Ecclesiastes? Seriously, right? So think, think no, no, no. Think, I'm, I'm, I'm currently writing a commentary on Song of Solomon. Like, would you, seriously, right? Oh, this, so, and this relates to your first comment as well, or your first question as well. If there's sort of no overt messianic meaning, what I, what I think that it's, it's important for us to understand, we, we view the Bible in light of how we view our God communicating. We believe that our God is a verbal God. We, we, we know that God communicated audibly from Sinai. We know that some of those words were given to prophets. Here's good reform doctrine for you. And we know that many of those words were written down. And all of those words whether it be Old Testament, New Testament, poetic dialogues of Job, Genesis account, all of them bear equal authority. So our, our reading of the Scripture is in light of who we consider our God to be. Our God is a verbal God, and if He gives us stuff that's difficult to understand that's His Word, it's still His Word, and we engage it uh, as the very Word of God. Is Elihu a good guy or a bad guy? I did an interview on Elihu. It's coming out in February. You're welcome to... All right, fine. Uh, I, that is true. There's this podcast called The Two Testaments. Are you familiar with this? It's run out of a professor. Yeah, it's, one, it's run out of a, uh, it's run by two professors at Beeson Divinity School, or Sanford's religious department. Um, and, and I speak about Elihu there, so there's going to be an extended response to this then. But um, at the end of the day, I would say all of Job and his friends are pretty good guys. They're trying their hardest based upon their ignorance. Recognize. Job, uh, no, I think a lot. 30, 30, 36. Um, 
yes, they're good because they're the very Word of God. But let me, let me answer what you're actually asking, okay? Here's what, here's what you're, you're asking. Let me answer this, okay? I think he's worse than the other friends, personally. Okay, because Elihu, what he does is he says, look, I was quiet, and I let you guys talk, right? And then he says, he, he, he buys into conventional wisdom. That's why he let them talk, because they were, oh, part of conventional wisdom is, part of traditional wisdom in, in, in the Bible in ancient Near East is that the older you are, the more wisdom you have. We see that throughout the book of Proverbs, right? My son, listen to your father and listen to your mother's counsel. And then we even, in Proverbs chapter 4, we see the grandparents invoked. So part of traditional wisdom is you listen to old people. So Elihu invokes that. He's like, I'm, I already listened to you guys, but check this out. I have like, I'm like spiritually inspired now. I'm basically speaking in the place of God. So now you old people and Job, you listen to me because you weren't able. That's worse. Or as my kids would say, worser. <laughs> well, I want Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is the behemoth in your life? Oh, no, I, 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 yeah, no, this one, okay, so th- this, yeah, no, that's, a, uh, so this one, I, I, I get asked this question so, so much, right? I, I have no idea. That's the, the short answer is I don't know. Look, I'm not going to dodge this. Uh, yes, please read, if, if you want an answer, no, I'm just kidding, but listen, let me just tell you actually what I think about this because I don't want to dodge any of your very good questions. I think that Behemoth and Leviathan, are they, there's likely a source domain, as I use that language here, there's likely a source domain to these animal things, okay? So they're probably referring to something in nature. And as we see, especially in the divine, the whirlwind speeches, it seems like that is, it, they're act, like actually being, making, God's actually making reference to something in nature. But it, it also seems like they, somehow, some way, transcend this nature thing to be something greater than that. Now, here's the reason why I don't know, and, and, and this, is why, this is why I lead with what I'm certain. I don't know. That's what I'm certain about. Now I'm going to nuance this a little bit and say, as you get into ancient Near Eastern texts and things like that, in comparative texts, you realize that sometimes these types of animals are spoken as, as something like deities or something like this, right? So, I'm not sure if there's something polemic going on there. I'm not sure what's behind the imagery, but I think that there's probably something, there's probably a source animal that these are actually referring to. Maybe or maybe not a dragon. I'm not sure. Questions useful for the whole room. Feel free to ask them. Josh Lavin. And then next, if you're going to have a question, over here, Steve Armstrong. Amen, Selah. Amen.
Yeah, I think part of the, the premise of, of the question is questionable, and that is that God still does the same type of thing, or God consistently does the type of thing that he did in, in Job's situation. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure that we can, we can make that, we can assume that. But I'm not sure that we can say God does this type of thing all of the time. So, I mean, to start off, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that, you know, Christians all of the time are given over to the hand of Satan to test like, like Job was. This seems to be a, quite a unique scenario as it is uh, depicted in the Bible in a very unique way. So, I, I, you know, I'm not so sure. Maybe this happens, but who knows? The, the second part of your question is, or maybe the, even the first part, is I think, you know, kind of interesting because I'm not so sure that I would, you know, I'm just, I'm not so sure that I would say that, uh, look, let me, let me be straight. I'm not so sure that I would say that Christians are handed over to Satan like Job was, like God permitted Satan to afflict Job. I'm just not sure that I would make that connection like you made it. That's, that's where I'm going with this. Yeah, I, so you'll have to forgive me. I think part of it was hearing, but I don't exactly understand the question. So could you kind of concisely do the last part again? Light and darkness imagery? No, that's actually not how Job is using the metaphor. Jo- Job is using, uh, for, there's, there's two things going on here. Initially, light represents existence, and then it represents light. So he's saying, my, I wish that my, my darkness was over my birthday. That means I wish it was not existent. And then he continues to develop the metaphor. Basically, light means life. He, he says nothing about God putting light in him or nothing like that. Uh, according to, to Job and to his friends, there are... There, they're arguing essentially over light, meaning life, darkness, meaning death, and what death actually means in light of Job's story. Job is, Job is saying, death, death with darkness, meaning death, would bring about rest for me. And his friends are saying, darkness, meaning death, is actually just retribution. You don't want that. Chapters three, th- you know, three through the, the epilogue. So Job shows us of, of in looking at it, Christologically, like Satan's view, okay, he can he can take it and he can 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. So think. Yeah. So so th- good. So uh, you know, much to maybe your your surprise, I do actually think it's possible to preach the good news from Job, to pre- the, preach the gospel from Job, but it must be done in a holistic way, and it must, you said big picture. So now we, we step back from the text, and we start to look at the text within, the, within the, the corpus of what some would call wisdom literature, and then ultimately the Old Testament, and then ultimately the, the biblical canon. And some, we take into consideration all of the faculties, we utilize all of the faculties that the Lord has given us to take into consideration all of the things that we know about history and the like, and we sort of come up with the, the, the following scenario, think. This light-darkness dichotomy is used to mean several things throughout the Bible, but also it's not exclusive to Job or the wisdom literature, or it's not exclusive to one meaning, and it's not exclusive just to this literature, okay? So let's just track this a little bit if if we can. I'll try to do this quickly because we had two minutes 12 minutes ago. So so think about this. Light-darkness dichotomy, we, we see the way that it's used in the wisdom literature, light meaning life, darkness meaning death, something like this. And we go, what? that doesn't sort of make really very much sense because it doesn't, we don't see that happening, right? And we also, there's, some, there's a bit of confusion, especially within the wisdom literature with regard to like a divinely ordained system of just retribution. We're kind of like, which way is it, right? We see them, we see conventional wisdom next to unconventional wisdom and we go, uh. What ends up happening, and again, I can't nuance this so much, but what we end up seeing toward the end of the Old Testament time, particularly through the intertestamental period and into the New Testament, is that there's vestiges of this imagery, like light and darkness and other metaphors that are utilized, they sort of are utilized from the ancient Near East into the Bible, from the Bible to Second Temple period literature, intertestamental Second Temple period literature, and then into the New Testament and sometimes even rabbinic writings. So these metaphors, you know, the metaphors that I was drawing out internally they're actually used across various corpuses of literature. I think that this is probably best understood at a conceptual level. Human beings, as they go through issues of like, you know, where they question retributive justice, they generally tend to think about these issues in light and darkness or other metaphors that are being used. Nevertheless, check this out. What we see with light and darkness, we end up seeing, for in, in, we see in ancient Near Eastern texts, we then see it in Second Temple period texts. So for like 1QM, the War Scroll, in, in the de- in, in, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see the sons of light, they're destined to life. The sons of darkness, they're destined to death. And then we end up seeing, oh my gosh, Jesus uses this terminology. And so does Paul, right? Sons of light, sons of darkness. Like, oh my goodness. So we, we, it, it, it's not like there's just one meaning to, the, to this metaphor. And we eventually end up seeing that this rhetoric, this same language is picked up elsewhere in the biblical canon to fill out the picture. So I hope that that's helpful. Again, I was not trying to be reductionistic. That's the problem about teaching any section of Job. You have the tendency to be reductionistic. Job is about this, right? This is what we're going to... And it's it's very difficult to do such things well. No, it's... it, It is... Right, so people conceive certain situations different ways. I think this transcends cultures and languages, as we see with light and darkness. We see this with lion imagery, for example, that shows up in different types of 
compositions throughout history. We also see this with imagery of swallowing, like swallowing people's goods. We see this from the ancient Near East all the way into the Second Temple period. Tons of this type of imagery is used. It, as people thought through certain things, they utilized similar imagery, but for their own theological purposes. And we see lots of Old Testament imagery picked up in the New Testament, sometimes even in the intertestamental period, to fill out the picture for us. 